0: Since we're in a series, A Picture is Worth, I was trying to think of an image of a soldier, a picture to use. So I thought, wouldn't it be neat if I wore my old uniform? Well, apparently, someone has let themselves go. <laughs> that was 40 pounds and 14 years ago, so that, that did not work. What image comes to mind when you think of a soldier? What image comes to mind? When you think of military service, I think most of us, when we think of military service, I know this is what comes to my mind or what came to my mind before I actually entered the army was an absolute transformation and dedication of an individual that's willing to perform a mission regardless of personal cost or loss. That's the image that would play in my mind. I I had watched war movies and, you know, Saving Private Ryan and, uh, and, and stuff like that. So I had this image in my mind of someone who was willing and committed to absolute fidelity towards seeing the mission completed. That's why the picture of a soldier works so well. And it wasn't much different in Paul's day. You see, when Paul uses military metaphors, immediately his audience began drawing a picture in their mind of what a soldier looked like. Soldiers were a part of everyday life. That's why we see Paul using this language so often in his letters. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Paul's use of the picture of a soldier in 2 Timothy. It's important to understand a couple of things about this short letter, this epistle. You see, this epistle is basically, if you boil it all down uh, to to just one statement, is about preserving and protecting the gospel and then taking that gospel to the world, But you see, 2 Timothy is kind of Paul's last will and testament to the church. This is the last letter he's going to write. He is basically writing this thing in the shadow of his own gallows, and he knows where he's heading. He knows that his death is soon to come, and he's concerned that he was going to be able to pass the baton of faith and leadership on to the next generation successfully, See, Paul is part of this first generation of Christians. Those that had, eyewitness, had been eyewitnesses to the resurrection, had been with Jesus on earth, had experienced his miracles, had been taught personally by Jesus, they find themselves coming to the end of their lives. The church is now 30 years old. Many are dying just due to natural causes, but many are finding themselves in a situation where they know they're going to have to give their life for their faith. And they don't want the chain to break with them. So Paul is writing to a young pastor in Ephesus, a young man by the name of Timothy. Now Timothy is somewhat of of an interesting individual when we study and we look at his life. He had went with Paul on a previous missionary journey. Paul decided to carry on somewhere else from Ephesus and he left Timothy there to set the church in order, So that's where Timothy finds himself. He's the pastor of this church. And it's, uh, it's kind of an unlikely match. Because in this church, we know there's false teaching going on. That's part of the reason Timothy was left there, was to deal with that. And um, we see a leader who is perhaps something less than what we would think of as a good leader in this situation. You see, Timothy physically was a weak man. We know he was sick very often. He had a lot of ailments, a lot of trouble. We know that he struggled greatly in his ability to be the leader that he needed to be in the situation in which he found himself. So Paul is writing. Apparently, he's gotten word that Timothy is struggling. He's writing this letter because he wants to ensure that he's transferring the baton successfully. There's some things that Timothy needs to get recalibrated in his mind and his heart if he is to carry the faith into the next generation. Don't necessarily think of Timothy and his weakness and leadership as a bad thing, though. Because you see, it is in our weakness often that we see God gain the most glory. So Timothy is struggling. Paul wants to reinforce his faith reinforce his mission and so he writes this letter to him and we read in 2nd Timothy 1 beginning in verse 13 these words he says hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learn from me a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Phygelus and Homogenes. May the Lord show special kindness to Anisiphorus and all his family, because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me, because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me may the lord show him special kindness on the day of christ's return and you know very well how helpful he was in ephesus before before paul begins to even address timothy he gives him examples of unfaithful men and one faithful one, as an example. These are men that Timothy knew. He probably was aware of the situations that led to either their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness to the ministry, and Paul is pointing that out, and then he begins speaking directly to Timothy, beginning in chapter 2, where he says, Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life. For then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. And hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Think about what I am saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. And this, verse 8, this is the foundation from which the previous verses rest. It says, Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. Paul uses the image of a soldier, of an athlete, and a farmer. And we're only going to look at the soldier this morning to reinforce Timothy's um, faith, his way of thinking. He needed, he needed some tools to carry out the mission he was given. And Paul is reminding him of those tools here. He is reminded of his transformation. He is reminded of his mission. He's reminded of the life expectations that he is going to face and he's reminded of focus. Now let's not leave this in the first century because I think so often when we read scripture, we tend to think of it as applying to someone else. That's not the case. You see, scripture... is is relevant as much today as it was then. You see, Timothy found himself in a war, and it's a war not much different than what we find ourselves in today. You see, it is no exaggeration, it is no stretch to say that the walk of a Christ follower is very much a war. We see it in the way perhaps people react to us. We see it in perhaps other places where the cost is very real. But to be a soldier in this war, there is nothing but the front line. We have no luxury of a rear area. If you're following Christ, you're in a war, you're on the front line, and you're going to have to rely on the tools that God has given us if you're going to see the mission to its end, if you're going to see it completed. You see, Paul knows that Timothy must focus not on what looked like a dire situation around him. Rather, Timothy must focus on Christ and who he was in Christ. In verse 1, Paul begins discussing The transformation that has already taken place in Timothy's life. Anyone who has ever served will tell you one of the single most defining moments in their life is when they transitioned from a civilian to a soldier. And that happens in a Christ follower's life when we come to faith in Christ. And that is what Paul is reminding Timothy of. He's like, listen, the transformation has already taken place. See, this epistle begins by contrasting Timothy, a faithful servant of Christ, with the unfaithful servants of chapter 1. So we should ask ourselves the question, what is the difference? Why do some faithfully serve and others fall away and even do damage to the church? Why are some faithful and many prove themselves to be unfaithful? And the answer to that question is the transformation. The answer is the gospel. You see, those who are faithful have had their identities forever changed. I read a statistic last Sunday that said 48% of Americans are now classified as post-Christian, either in word or in deed. Post-Christian, not un-Christian. What that means is... Post-Christian means they've had exposure to the gospel, they've had exposure to Christ, they have probably claimed it at some point in their life, yet they have rejected it and they have walked away. The difference between those that would be characterized as that and those who are truly Christ followers is a true transformation that has taken place. Paul mentions this transformation when he begins this uh, this epistle, he says In uh, chapter 1, verse 13, a small phrase that we see that's common in Paul's language and that we could quickly brush over if we're not paying attention. He says this, it's in Christ Jesus, the love that you have in Christ Jesus. This term, in Christ Jesus is speaking of an intimate union that is absolutely necessary, a union with Christ that is necessary if we are to remain faithful. It is a union that is so strong that when we stand in front of a holy God as sinners... And he looks at us. He does not see the sin that has so marred our lives. Rather, for those of us who are in Christ, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. That's what union with Christ really looks like. Now, he brings it home to Timothy here and begins to put it uh, into practical application. He says in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Timothy, my dear son... Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. And we look at that and we think, really? Is that it? Like, he didn't need to read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Doesn't he need to read a leadership book? Is this really it? I mean, he needs to do something. Something's got to be fixed. If he's going to be strong, he's going to have to do X, Y, and Z. But Paul is pointing him to where the true transformation lies, and that is being strong, strong through the grace, the free unmerited favor of God that God gives us. But there is a real uh, misconception, I think, in the church today when we think about grace, because often... When we think about grace, we reduce it down to something that happened in the past. We think we come to faith by grace, and then it's kind of left up to us after that. That's an inaccurate picture of what grace actually looks like. Grace is not a one time event, grace is an ever present, ever flowing gift from God into the believer's life. It begins, yes, at salvation, but it is the only thing that will strengthen us and prepare us. For the war ahead. And if we view it as a one-time event, the danger that we run into is trying to make it about ourselves and our own self-sufficiency. Yes, I needed, I needed grace to become saved. Now it's kind of, it's kind of on me. And when we start thinking that way, we will inevitably turn our mission into nothing more than behavior modification. And if behavior modification is the weapon we use in our war, we find ourselves in a battle that we cannot and that we will not win. You see, when we replace grace with anything else, we're destined for failure. Perhaps Timothy was dealing with this now and was needing the encouragement to go back to this simple truth of resting in the strength that comes through the grace of God. That is the transformation that takes place between a civilian and a soldier. You see, to the civilian, you're a slave to the lie that you're self-sufficient, that you are enough, you're good enough. And while we are a slave to that, we are wholly and completely ineffective in the war Uh, that is before us. It will never sustain us, it will only leave us wanting, and it will only leave us hungry for more. However, the transformation that takes place because of Christ transforms us from a slave to the lie of self-sufficiency, to a soldier who is free to serve his commander and able to do so because of the strength that comes from him." The soldier is an interesting term as it's used in scripture. In Greek, the term soldier can both be translated as soldier, a title, someone who's functioning as a soldier, or it can be translated as um, the act of being a soldier. And Paul now begins looking at the mission, what it looks like to actually be functioning as a soldier. A soldier. You see, as a Christ follower, our faith is not inactive. It's an active faith. In the Great Commission, some of the last words that Jesus shares with his followers, he is explicit in his command to go. God is ascending God. God has a mission that he has set before us, and we are to be active in pursuing that mission. You see, to a soldier... The mission is the all-consuming focus of your life. You train for the mission. You prepare for the mission. You actually begin to look forward to the day that you get to put your training into practice. Excuse me. Um, I remember 9-11. I was uh, driving to um, my company's headquarters and uh, heard on the radio about the first plane hitting. Um, get there and I'm standing in my first sergeant's office and we're watching on TV as the second plane hits. So we now know what's going to happen. Sure enough, by day's end, we were told, we don't know where you're going, but you need to be ready to go. Sure enough, we get the call. We're going. And uh, we're there at Fort Bragg and the training has kicked up a notch. We're now preparing intensely Uh, to be as prepared as possible when we actually get to where we're going. We don't know where we're going... But we find ourselves uh, crammed into the movie theater there on Fort Bragg. Uh, It's my unit, and then there's some elements from uh, a special forces group that's with us. There's all this high-ranking brass coming in. We're getting briefings um, on the rank structure of Al-Qaeda. We're getting briefings on on possible and potential whereabouts and all of this stuff. And we're like, we can't believe they're even telling us this stuff. We're being told things like 9-11 is your generation's Pearl Harbor, and you may well be heading into your generation's D-Day. So this anxiety is building. This excitement is building. Sure enough, we find ourselves on a plane. We, We know we're going. We're still not sure where we're going yet. We fly into an island in the Indian Ocean. We had to change planes because the plane we were on was much too large to land where we were going. We're there for 36 hours, and we finally get the call. It's time to go. We go to the green ramp, which is where time just stops, apparently. It's basically a staging area where you prepare to get on the, on, the, uh, on the aircraft. And we're told there that where we are going, they will not fly an aircraft into during daylight hours. That's when it becomes real to us. So we're told to go to sleep because we're probably not going to get the opportunity to do so for another couple of days, which is a joke. So we sit there for hours. Finally, we board the plane. En route to our destination rumors start circulating in the plane that we're going to have to turn around and go back. Where we're heading is under attack, and they didn't want to land the plane there. Now, we never turned around. The assumption was that high-ranking uh, SF guy said, I'm going to be there tonight, and, uh, and they, uh, they gave him his wish. So we're coming in, and the plane's doing all the things it does when it's going into an area like that. And we're scared. All we have ever seen, all we have ever experienced is what we saw in training and what you see in movies like Saving Private Ryan. So the thoughts are going through our mind. What's going to happen when they drop the gate? Like, who's going to get shot? Well, we're going to experience indirect fire, direct fire. I mean, what's going to happen? All we knew is a contact guy was going to meet our plane. He was going to hand the senior man a chem light, which is like what you give kids at Halloween, he used to put it in the back of his helmet, and we are all to go in a dead run after him. We're coming in, and the flight crew is visibly shaken. And you know what they say on an airplane? If the flight crew's nervous, you probably should be nervous too. I mean, these guys are visibly scared of what's coming. We finally touch down. They start throwing our junk out the back. They don't even fully stop the aircraft. We go running off, and there we go. You know what happened? Nothing. (laughs) We take off running. We find ourselves in a terminal, we're crowded in, breaking one of the basic rules of combat, and that is do not give your enemy a one-and-done scenario where they can lob one round in and take care of a lot of you, and nothing happens, a mind-numbing nothingness. We're in what's called um, strict noise and light discipline. That means you can't talk, you can't make noise, you can't shine a light, you can't do any of that thing, but we just sit there. That was it. And that describes a good deal of the rest of my three years uh, in the Army. Sure, there were times of intense anxiety and, and action. But most of the time, it was boring, mundane, just day in, day out the same thing. However, the whole time, we were on mission. We were doing exactly what we were sent there to do. I think this is important because if you talk to anyone who's ever served, that is such a common story. And I think it's very common to the Christ follower as well. Paul gives Timothy the mission in verse 2. He says, You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people, who will be able to pass them on to others. That's our mission. We are to teach others, to teach others who teach others the gospel. That's it. It really is that simple. We try to make it grand. Where a soldier uh, perhaps is wrong in his thinking that, that his experience at war is going to look like a war movie, the same is true of a Christ follower who has all these grand plans of a dynamic gospel ministry and is going to do all of these things. But see, that is not the weapon of our war. We are so quick to try to turn things into something much larger than they really are when the command, the mission, is simply to teach the gospel to others who will teach the gospel to others who will teach the gospel it may sound simple but that is where the battles fought and that is how the war is won we are doing a great disservice to ourselves when we pump ourselves up thinking it's going to be much bigger much grander than what it probably will be if you talk to the average seminary or Bible College student if they're honest most of them will tell you that they think they're probably going to be the next Billy Graham or they're going to be the next big-name author or they're going to be a megachurch pastor or something like that, when the reality is the vast majority of them will spend their lives serving in churches that will have less than 100 people in average Sunday attention. What's it doing to our minds when we're expecting one thing? The reality is another is we tend to think that when it doesn't look the way we think it is, that we're somehow being unfaithful, when the reality is it's there that we really are being faithful. But let's not think that because the first two steps seem simple enough, the gospel, the grace of God, which has nothing to do with me, it's God's unmerited favor to me, The mission, which is simply to teach others who will teach others who will teach others. And we think it's simple. But we forget that it's still a war. And we have to have an accurate picture of the danger that lies ahead. And Paul addresses this as he's telling Timothy what his life is going to look like and what he should expect. In verse 3 he says, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We had a saying in the army, and I'm not going to repeat it, but basically it was embrace the misery, embrace the suffering. We would brag about who had it worse, who got there first, who did this. And it all centered around who had suffered most, because whoever suffered most had the bragging rights. You see, a soldier expects suffering, Warfare no one ever goes into thinking it's going to be easy. There is going to be things that are expected, suffering that is expected, and things that you've never even considered, like sand fleas that are terrible, horrible little creatures uh, that will make your life miserable. But if you were to transfer or translate verse three, literally, it would read: Take your part in suffering. Along with me. It's not an if, it's an expectation of when and something that we are told to expect to happen. And Paul knows this better than most and what it looks like to endure this suffering. This is not someone ignorantly telling someone else what to experience who's not experienced it himself. Listen to Paul's story in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Our mission as Christ followers to teach the gospel to those who will teach the gospel and so on requires a fidelity despite hardship. You see, we... We have a dangerous thought in our culture that Jesus, and I think it's because we don't experience suffering as much as some others, that Jesus is a nice little addition to our lives. He's something less than the all-consuming commander that must be the central focus of our lives he 's seen as something less than that that we can lean on gain strength through his grace in the hardship, and when we see Jesus as nothing more than a cosmic band aid we can expect to become quickly become casualties of war because we will not be equipped to deal with the hardship that is coming. You see to a Christ follower like a soldier. Oftentimes, you do not have the broad picture in mind or the ability to view the whole picture. You only see your one tiny, seemingly insignificant, terrible spot that you're in. And all you have to hold on to is the reality of a sovereign God whose hand has not been taken from the situation, whose hand has not been taken from this world and the events that you're facing but is still in control and has promised a final victory. See, to a soldier, much time is spent thinking about home. It's in our language, especially during training and deployments. It's 365 and a wake-up, 364 and a wake-up, every day and a wake-up. You're counting down because you're looking to the right, to the privilege of going home, that the current hardships will end And one day, you will get to go home. And for the Christ follower, it is this focus on the eternal reward that's waiting for us that should motivate us while we're living the life here today. Paul now brings this home by reminding Timothy of where his focus should be. He says in verse 4, Soldiers don't get tied up In the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. If we think of Jesus as being completely personal, he's kind of this part of my life, he's not the whole thing. We've got our mind on civilian affairs. Now, understand, civilian affairs is nothing really bad. It's just the trivial things of life that Paul is telling Timothy to not focus on. Rather, he's telling him to focus on Christ. You see, there, there is no part-time soldier in this war. It's all full-time, and we must be focused not on the civilian affairs of life, but on our commander so that we may please him. Jesus addresses this in Luke 9. Um, He talks about kind of the double-minded person trying to follow him. He says to one guy, follow me. And the guy says, well, first let me go bury my father. The dude's dad wasn't even dead. What he's saying is let me hold out for my inheritance. Another guy says, well, let me first go home and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus remarks, he who's put his hand to the plow and turned back is unfit for service In the kingdom, we must remain focused on our commander. We must remain focused on Christ. We had a saying in the army stay alert, stay alive. If you become complacent, you die. It's the same thing here. Like Timothy, if we fall into the temptation of starting to look at the dire situation around us, we lose focus. And when we lose focus, it's there that we will begin to fail in our mission. So Paul has summed summed this all up. A soldier is one who has been transformed. He is on mission. He is enduring the life that the mission almost always brings, and he's focused. Now, Paul ends this section in a way that's very common to him. You see, Paul can't wait when he's using metaphors of a soldier, an athlete, or a farmer, or whatever, to say, okay, the Christian life, it looks like this, and it looks like this, and it looks like this. But do you want to see the final example, the real example? The real example is found in Christ. Every illustration, every metaphor is used to build a more complete picture and then he gives the real picture, that of Jesus Christ, at the end. Remember at the beginning I said verse 8 is what kind of holds the whole thing up? Verse 8 he says, always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And the band can come on up. He points to Jesus because with Jesus, it's something real. It's not an abstract picture. It is our true example of what it means to walk with Christ. We see the example is Christ himself. Because you see, in Jesus, we have our transformation. In Jesus... We have our mission and the ability to perform it until it's completed. In Jesus, we can endure the life the mission often brings. It is in Jesus that we have our focus and our strength. And it is in Jesus that we find a commander worthy of worship and a high priest who is not ignorant of our sufferings, but has endured far more than we ourselves will ever endure so this morning as we go into a time of communion let's reflect on what Jesus' life looked like let's reflect on the hardships that he endured the mission that he endured so that we could be reconciled to God let's look at Isaiah 53 in closing Says he was oppressed and treated harshly yet he never said a word he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. So, this morning, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, we invite you to remember with us the sacrifice that was paid by Christ. There will be couples around the room uh, holding a cup of juice, which represents. The blood that was shed, that was sacrificed, so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. And they're holding a plate of crackers, which represents the body that was broken. Take it, dip it in the juice, and consume it as we remember the transformation that was brought about by Christ and what he did on the cross.